We're still in the introduction phase of this series that we started, Whatever Happened to the Power of God. We begin to examine exactly where it is God has gone, because if we're being completely honest, it seems that if He has disappeared. It seems as if the God of the Bible, the one that we read about in all His majesty, His power and glory, is a different God than the God that we have today. And some of that has to do with the way that we read Scripture. Some of that has to do with us in general. And I'll tell you this right now, as we go into this week by week, is that it has more to do with us than it ever does God. You know, and the reason for that is the fact that God is unchanging. He's unwavering. What He says is true. The problem is, is the truth that He has said is something we have a hard time We don't believe it. We're not sure if He's really meant that. We've got theologians today on every side of the aisle with every issue. They'll argue about everything until they're blue in the face about whether God intended this to be or that to be. When you talk about the healing power of God as an example where God's will is to heal people, they'll ask, you know, they'll say, well, God doesn't do that anymore. He did away with that at the time of apostles, all of that. So much to the fact that they're so deeply held to that belief that if somebody was miraculously healed, they still say that that does not prove that God heals today. And that's not just words I'm throwing out there. I've had people tell me that. So the problem is, is where is this God at and where did he go? And so we've started in this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It says, but know this, that in the last days, times will come, for me, perilous times will come, excuse me. Men will be lovers of themselves. They're lovers of money. They're boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. For of this sort, this is, those are creep into the households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Jonas and John Brewers resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. You see, what we have today in the modern church is we have a form of godliness, but completely deny its power. What we don't understand is what the gospel is and what it was intended to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells us that this gospel that I preach to you is that Christ died, he was buried, and resurrected three days later. That is the gospel. And in that is an extremely powerful God. Because to take something that was dead and make it alive again is only something that God himself could do. You and I do not possess the power to do that. Because we're not the givers of life. And so here we have a supernatural God at work. But where is he today? Where are the examples of people being raised from the dead? Where miraculous healings going on? Why don't we hear more about this? Well, the problem is, is we have traded into the power of God for something that reflects it, but denies it. We like our systems, our, our ways of approaching things. We go about it in a religious setting of some sort, and we go and we put in our time, our service, we stand up, we sit down, we recite a verse, we say the Lord's Prayer, we maybe take communion, we go about our day, and we start off and do the rest of the week as if God doesn't exist. We pretend that God is up on this hill somewhere looking down upon us as if a kid looking into an ant farm, and the only time he really gets involved is if it even really, really gets bad. Or he is the one that is causing the destruction. It's kind of like the little kid with the ant farm. He grabs it and he shakes it real hard just to watch what happens. You've got a God out there that claims to love people. But if he loves us, then why do we have to go through bad things? 
You've got a mixing up of words saying that, you know, okay, yeah, God, you did this or you said that, but I don't know if I really believe that. I don't know if I can believe every bit of the Word of God. I believe some of it. I can take parts of the Bible I like, like judge not lest you be judged. I like that part because only God can judge us. You see, what we've done is we've traded in the things of God for, and picked up other things. We've created a God in our own image. And so we're still in the introductory phase of this here because what we have to wrap our head around is how bad it's gotten. And I think that we have lied to ourselves in a sense that it is worse than what we really want to admit it to be because it happens here as well with believers from the camp that we come from, one that believes in the supernatural power of God, we get caught up in our traditions just like everybody else does. We are not immune to this. Jesus dealt with this. In Mark chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Then the scribes and Pharisees, so who were they? They were the teachers of Israel, the ones that were politically in power, and the ones that were the ones that would teach uh, all the people, saying, you know, this is the law, this is how you execute it, this is what you have to do. So the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of, elders, of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now let me ask you this. Now I know moms that you get on your kids. Did you wash your hands yet? You go to the dinner table, right? But th- would you really walk around policing everybody's kid? I hope not. I hope there's not enough time in the day for you to accomplish that. And here they are. Why do, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses his father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father and mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. What are they talking about? It was commandment to take care of mom and dad when they got older. But what the Pharisees were doing were selling the goods and throwing mom and dad off to the side and saying, This is a gift of God to me. To my benefit. And Jesus is saying, now wait a minute. You're saying my disciples are transgressing the, uh, the, the, the commands of the fathers, but you're transgressing the commandments of God, and yet you are the one that are getting on to me? What's the next word he says? Hypocrites. And as we talked about last week, hypocrite is not saying one thing and doing another. It is portraying yourself as something that you are not. Shakespearean language used it all the time. That there were actors that would wear masks. They were portraying themselves as this item, as this individual, as this animal, depending on what it was. But that's not really who they were. And the Pharisees were doing this. Because this is not a word that was thrown around lightly. We throw it around all the time. But this is something that wasn't thrown around lightly. He said, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's in vain that they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. You see, what happens here is that, yeah, the Pharisees were putting on a good show. That he talks about, don't be like the Pharisees, that when you fast, don't go around looking all pale and sad. Do it unto the Lord. That when you give, don't announce it from the rooftops and look at what I am doing. We talked about in the last series about, about money is that you, it, it, it's always funny. Back in the day when the buckets got passed around, dollar bills crumbled up, tossed in there, no big deal. Hundred dollar bills, flat. Laid in there nice and neat and crisp and all of that. You get your reward. He's telling them, don't be like the Pharisees. 
Because they are hypocrites. They're portraying themselves as something that they are not. When Nicodemus went to Jesus at night saying, okay, you, you, nobody can do this stuff that you're doing, so what do I have to do here? And he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what on earth are you talking about? And he turned around and he looked at him and he says, are you not a teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these? You see, Jesus is always dealing with the Pharisees because the Pharisees are the ones that are constantly in his face. But they're the ones, if anybody should have known, it should have been them. They were the ones that were teaching Israel. It's no different today. It amazes me that somebody will come to me with a Bible question of some sort. And if I don't know the answer, they are shocked. Absolutely shocked. Because apparently that when you get called to be a pastor, all the answers get downloaded to your brain and you're just supposed to be able to rattle them off like it's no big deal. I got news for y'all. I have to study just like you do. I wasn't born with this knowledge or ability to do anything. One is I'm graced to do it, certainly. But another thing is I spend hours in the Word trying to understand it to make sure that I am teaching properly. But if I stand up here and teach falsehood, is that on you or is that on me? That's on me. It's on you for listening to it, but it's on me for teaching it. Who's going to be accountable for that? It's me. Jesus is always holding the Pharisees accountable. In fact, and I didn't put this verse in here, but in John 10 where it says the thief comes but to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Who he's talking about there is the Pharisees. Because their system is stealing, is killing, and destroying the nation of Israel from its ability to be able to go and come to the Savior. The one, the Messiah that they have been waiting for. Wasn't the devil doing it? He didn't need to. He had his minions out doing it. It's the same today. The religious system of which we follow in this country will lead you to a form of godliness, but there is no power behind it. Because it is the power of the gospel that brings change and brings salvation. And with that gospel is not being preached in churches across this country. And that should bother us. I had a friend of mine that grew up in a, a mainline denomination. I won't throw the name out there because not every group is like this. Spent his entire life going to this church. He moved up to Omaha. He got invited to go to his friend's church. And for the first time, he had heard the word salvation. 25 years old. He had never heard it once. He called his old pastor up. And he said, why did you never tell me about this? He had no idea. He thought he was in good shape. He thought he was going to heaven. The reason he thought he was going to heaven, he had been baptized. And he went to church. Now, his religious upbringing said, I went through confirmation, I was baptized, I went to church. But they didn't talk about the Bible at home. They didn't read the scripture. They didn't do anything. There was no prayer. They didn't pray over a meal. They didn't do anything like that. They just went to the church. Because that's where God was, apparently. And so he was so upset because he'd never heard this time. And it dawned on him, he's like, I was going to hell. If I had been killed at any point in time, I was not right with God, and I didn't know this. So he calls his pastor and says, why did you not tell me about this? His pastor's response, I thought everybody knew it. That man will be held accountable for the words that he says. Let me read you something else, because I'm kind of going off on a a little tangent here. Is it all right if I take a side journey here? Because... In studying a couple of weeks ago, I came across this, and I wasn't planning to go this direction, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because when we talk about John 10, we're talking about Jesus dealing with the teachers of Israel, getting on them for the words that they are saying because they are leading people away from God. They are trying to deny the fact that the Messiah is standing in front of them. And this is not the first time that this has happened. 
Because we're dealing with the nation of Israel. Israel does good, they do bad, they get judged, you know the routine. But who is the cause of that? In Ezekiel chapter 34, starting in verse 1, you can connect this to John 10. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Came to who? Came to Ezekiel. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Now, the shepherds of Israel are not the people keeping the sheep here. Okay? Because you can't really screw that up. Let them die. That's about it. Prophesy against the shepherd of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Who are the flocks? It's all the people. Woe, anytime you see that, that's never a good thing. You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey, and my flock became food for every beast of the field. Because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherd search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths, that they may no longer be food for them. This is the same thing that's happening in the New Testament. Jesus is getting on the Pharisees saying, listen, you portray yourself as something. You build yourself up at the expense of others. You control the sacrifices and you control the mode of worship and you control the finances that come into the temple. But you hypocrites, you are leading people away from God. Jesus standing in the flesh, the anointed one, the light of the Lord has come back to the earth, standing in Jerusalem, and the leaders of the religious system are driving them away. That's why there's an unpardonable sin, because Israel rejected its Messiah. They were the shepherds. This is still happening today. We have a form of godliness. We have this piousness, this like we can never be happy in church. We can never walk around as the children of God, released and free from the bonds of Satan because that's not religious. I remember a church I was at one time, they would have pre-service prayer. And they put a sign up, they would do it in the, the, the main auditorium there. And they had a sign up, and the sign bothered me. It says, prayer going on, Please enter quietly and reverently. How do you enter in a room reverently? Is that a walk that you do? You have to sign up for something? I mean, and I'm sitting there thinking like, what are we reverencing? The presence of God or the fact that we're praying? Because I don't know about you, I don't need it quiet in order to pray to God. And I, I, there can be distractions going on. Because he's at the center, not the act that I'm doing. It always bothers me when I see this because we see people that think they've come to God through some sort of system, not realizing that the power of God has never been transformed in their lives. 
Nothing has changed. In Romans chapter 1, I want you guys to see this. We use this passage often. And we talk about people who are unbelievers. But I want you to notice something here. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. We look at this, and we're always saying, yeah, these are those unbelievers because what's inside of them shows the power of God because it's clearly seen. His invisible attributes are obvious based off what is made. And if you're intellectually honest in any capacity, the fact that your body is a system of which takes care of itself and has the ability to heal itself, pretty impressive. I know science like to say it was an accident. We're pretty fortunate to be here. But it was designed by God. But here's the problem. The wrath of God is revealed against all what? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. What if we put the form of godliness that has denied its power into that same category? Because certainly that's what Jesus was doing. You guys are portraying yourselves as godly. You come near me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. What if it's deeper than that? What if it's greater than that? It goes on past this to talk about that he turned them over to their debased mind to do what is unnatural, a man with a man and a woman with a woman. And later at the end of the chapter it says, even so the judgment are those who approve of such a thing. Because it is not just the ones acting it out, it is also those who have approved of that, and yet we have a church today that says, yeah, this is okay, God made you this way. Let me tell you something, no, He didn't. We choose what we do, and we need to own that sin. I don't know about you, but when I sin, I've made a conscious decision to do it. In my life, I've never woken up and said, whoops, I didn't know I did that. No, it's like your diet. You ever been on a diet? They're fun, aren't they? No, they're not fun. It's kind of like your job. If the job was so much fun, they wouldn't have to pay you to go. You'd volunteer. You're on a diet. Have you ever accidentally ate a cupcake? No, you haven't. That's a lie. Yeah, you may have been tempted, and you may be thinking like, God, I know you said you'd never let me be tempted beyond what I can handle, and here we are, but you made a decision to eat that cupcake, or that pizza, or anything that tastes good, for that matter. Yeah, whatever, it's a temptation, but you never accidentally ate it, it's like, well, I didn't know that was a cupcake, I thought it was a carrot. That's never happened. If it has, we need to talk, Okay. Yeah, yeah. Listen, you live in a house of lies, all right? <laughs> Guys, we're going to pray for my wife. But look at what happened. We've changed the glory of the incorruptible God 
into an image that looks a lot like us. God loves me the way I am. It's not true. Because if it was, he wouldn't have had to send his son. God loves you, certainly, but not the way you are. Or not one time would Jesus ever say, repent, go and sin no more. Because that's the way you were. You see, he doesn't love me in that present state. Not like that. It's actually that he loves me that he tells me to change. That's love. In Romans 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore, so because of all these things, you are inexcusable. Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath and the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patience, continuance, and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. This is something that we shouldn't be doing. We shouldn't be doing these things. We're, we shouldn't be okaying these things. We should not be a part of something that does that. It says, oh, it's okay to sin. God made you that way. Never should we be a part of that, but yet we have churches today that embrace this. On top of that, we've taken the incorruptible image of God and we've made it into things that look so much like us and we bow down before them. And those things that look like us happen to be things that we like. Because we want the service to be a certain way. I'm going to find a church of which the music is the way that I like it. I'm going to find a church that the children's program is the way that I like it. I'm going to find a church that the sermons are less than 15 minutes long. Because man, we don't need no long-winded preachers in this place, right? Can I get an amen? I mean, there's lunch to be had. Carrot cake. Hallelujah. But, but the thing is, guys, is that this is what we do, is we're out for a comfort-seeking. People are not on a truth quest, they're on a happiness quest. The question of whether God exists is not an intellectual one, it's a moral one. We don't want anybody to tell us how we should live, and it even comes to the things of God and people who are truly born again, that we say, yeah, God, I know that you told me that you want me to live this way, but I don't want to. And that's all because we don't have the heart of God. Because we refuse to stand up for truth. That we back things that we shouldn't. That we live our lives in a way that does not portray the image of God. It amazes me to hear some of the foul language and stuff that comes out of a professing Christian's mouth. I've never understood that. Because I want my tongue to glorify God. And yeah, I'm sarcastic. We all know it. But it's gotten me in trouble a few times. I've had to repent a few times. But man, why aren't the words out of there coming out of my mouth uplifting and glorifying to God? The action that I'm doing the same way. Because I want to be comfortable. Why is it so hard to go to a prayer service? Because it's not fun. 
There are a lot of people that love the Word, and they can sit there and listen to somebody teach the Bible all day long and say, okay, we're going to get together and have prayer. I honestly ask this question, and I mean this in all sincerity. If I said next week we're not going to have any music, we're going to show up and we're just going to pray, I wonder how many people would come. I bet they, a lot of people would find something else. Well, you know, family called, i got to go take care of this, or whatever. I mean, pick any excuse you want. Because we're not interested in the things of God. We want to come to God in our own way. We want to approach Him on our own system instead of saying, God, what do you want from me? You look at the lives of the apostles who gave up everything that laid their lives down willingly for the sake of the gospel, and we're not willing to give up anything, including a little bit of time, because it might be uncomfortable. And part of the problem is, is that in this country, we are spoiled. And there's no other way to say it. When I was in the Philippines, preaching in that humidity, the only thing that was on my mind was air conditioning. I'm not kidding. If you saw the pictures on that trip, I am soaked to the bone, like sweat pouring out of my body. I did not know a human being could sweat that profusely. It was unbelievable. And on top of that, they wanted to hug you when you were done. And all I wanted to do was cut my jeans off and get in the shower because there was no other way those things were coming off. And then I'm thinking, like, how can you do this? How can you have service like this? We need air conditioning. Can we get an amen? Let's face it. We are spoiled. When I see pictures of the churches in El Salvador with dirt floor and broken plastic seats and they're on their knees praying before God, most of us would be like, can we go to a different room? We're so spoiled because we want to take God and say, all right, God, you come down to our level and we'll do this our way. I'm certainly glad the apostles didn't. Look at verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these also not having the law are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience are also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. You see, again, it's the secret things. It's, it's, that, it's this motive that we have behind it and how we're doing things. That is really what it comes down to. That the Gentiles who were never given a law, these Pharisees were the teachers of the law. They had it right there in front of them, but they twisted it. They changed it to fit what they wanted so they could control the people better. Does that happen in our churches today? You bet it does. Absolutely, it's been happening for the last couple thousand years. Say, well, if you give more money, God will pray. I showed you guys during the, when we were teaching on Godonomics, uh, all the things that you get in the mail, and saying if you take that glass of water and put it on your nightstand and dip your finger in it and drop seven drops on this and pray this prayer, and God will bless you. How many people do you think did that? I have a file in my desk right now full of all these letters I keep getting, and every week it gets bigger. Because I thought it would be a good idea to sign up for some of this stuff just to see what would come. I'm regretting that decision. It's unbelievable. But yet, people do it all the time. Why? Because we're trying to buy God's love. 
Verse 17, indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, you commit adultery? You of a horror idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. See, there was a time where the name of Yahweh, the name of God, was being blasphemed by all the pagan nations because of the nation of Israel. The pagan nations were saying, if that's your God, I don't want anything with it. I don't want a part of that because of the people of God and how they were acting and living. Unfortunately, that still goes on today because we want to ride the aisle. We want to be on both sides of the fence. Verse 25, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now, what does that mean? Remember, underneath the Mosaic law, and this is what this is talking about, that in order to enter it, you had to be under the covenant. And the sign of the covenant was circumcision. So as long as you kept the law perfectly, that circumcision was valid. But the second you broke it, it didn't matter because you broke the conditions of the law. So it didn't make any difference because you're not living your life the way that you're supposed to. They thought by mechanically going through it, hey, I'm good, I've done this. But here Paul is saying it's a matter of the heart. It's no different in our churches today. People show up every Sunday. Hey, I'm at church. I was baptized when I was a baby. I went through confirmation or any other thing that you want to call it. I must be right with God. Yeah, you worship me with your lips. But your heart is far from me. Because our lives do not reflect the lifestyle of one who has been changed. Verse 26, therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he who is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. You see, all we want, is we, and this is what we try to do, is we try to take the image of this incorruptible God into something that looks more like us. We have a movement in this country called humanism. And it's a humanist gospel, a system that the thoughts and centers on the humans and their values, what they believe, their capacities, your self-worth. You hear that thrown around a lot right now, don't you? The doctrine emphasizing a person's capacity for realizing who you are and fulfilling your destiny in life. It says that God made the universe salvation for no other reason than the happiness of mankind. And that's it. Thus, there's got to be many paths to God. I mean, yeah, I know the Muslims worship Allah, but that just means God. In Arabic, we worship the same God. And a lot of people believe that. It places man at the center and says the end of all things is God's or your happiness. Is God concerned with your happiness? Ultimately, no. He's concerned with your obedience. And in your obedience, you will find happiness. See, the thing is, God doesn't want us miserable. God doesn't want us broke. He doesn't want us sick. Don't get me wrong. But He didn't die on the cross so you can be happy. 
See, man's no longer conforming to the image of Christ. We're making Christ conform to the image of man. And so the Humanist Manifesto, something that was written in 1933, they still believe that the traditional theism, they believe in that, and faith and prayer and hearing God and whatnot is assumed to love and care for persons, to hear and understand their prayers, and to be able to do something about them. But they also believe that this is an unproved and outmoded faith. That we have to look deeper. Because frankly, guys, we have hypocrisy in the church. We have a group of people that have a form of godliness, but certainly deny its power. In Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to get moving here. Starting in verse 12, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos. Right, so this is, there's seven letters, seven churches, each one specifically laid out. These things has he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. This is specifically where they are. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, either in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have, uh, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. I'll explain that in a minute. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. Thus you have also those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. I'll explain that again here in a minute. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things which he said hath a sharp edge and two-edged sword is what we're talking about here. This is a picture out of You see it in the book of Hebrews. You see it all through the book of Revelation. This is the word of God. It is the word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to discern truth from a lie. Our thoughts versus God's thoughts. And so I've got this picture here. This is a time of Pergamos. Had a massive, massive temple there. Famous for their libraries in modern-day Turkey. It was... uh, Set up right around 133 B.C. is really, really what it started taking off and getting big. Uh, they worshipped Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom. And so they had this main room. And so it was destroyed later by this caliph named Omar. It became the seat of Babylonian sun worship. It was the center of idolatry and demon-controlled religion. They were all over the place. And they had many temples to nature and the things that were created rather than the creator. And so he says, I know your works and where you dwell. He says that, I know the things that you do, but these things that I have against you. So this church was called Satan's Seat. It symbolized secular power and civil religion working in Satan. And I'm going to show you the image that they had here because this is what they use and this is what they bowed down to. Can you go to that next picture? You guys ever seen that before? Should look, it should look familiar. Because this is the... Uh, the sign of Asulupus—I can't even say Asulupus, who was known as the god of healing. It's this is the god of medicine and healing. It should look a lot like a logo that we are familiar with. Go ahead and show. Now they added another serpent there, but basically that's it. This is where it comes from. The Greek. Do the people that put this together have any idea what they're doing? I don't know. Maybe it's a coincidence. But this rod was a snake entwined staff. And it was a symbol of our medicine system today. So when we look at this and we see what's going on here, we ask the question, is that why were they worshiping this? Well, because there were certainly issues that were going on. You see, the Nicolaitans, he said, I hate their teaching, was this heretical Gnostic group. 
that was around in the early church, Jesus, uh, they came around after the time of Jesus, that they taught the law of God did not apply to man in the flesh because man is spirit and flesh, and therefore that he did in the flesh did not apply to him spiritually. And so we begin to question, Gnostic means to know, knowledge. So it, they talk about the Nicolaitans have been linked to the heresy that was taught by Balaam. And what Balaam taught was that the, the feast and all that stuff would, didn't matter. They would lead them into these pagan feasts and these orgies and these different things that were going around. Stuff that's happened there in Pergamum. This is why Jesus is against them. This is why Jesus is getting after them. That Balaam, when he put a stumbling block in front of the children of Israel about 1,400 years before this happened, that it was okay that you eat this food sacrificed to idols, that it's okay that you're committing sexual immorality. It wasn't sinful. You just do whatever you need to do. You do whatever makes you feel good. Whatever seems right in your eyes. Because God is made in our image. We're unwilling to make ourselves uncomfortable. We're looking for something that makes us feel better. We're looking for something that makes us happy. Churches are, are thriving off of that message today. When I say thriving, they got people coming constantly. There are books that are being sold, seminars being put on every single day by people saying how to reach more people. And we take all these man-centered systems trying to draw people in. You know what Jesus said? Is that the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews. That people aren't drawn to the gospel, they're drawn to the gospel bearers. Because when we walk in love as the love of Christ, willingly laying down our lives. You know what Paul could have done? At any point in time, I guarantee you, he could have called an army of people together who would have fought to get him out of all of those prisons. But he chose not to. He willingly laid down his life because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus could have called a horde of angels and pulled them off that cross, but he chose not to. All the apostles died as martyrs killed for their faith because they knew that death brings life. And they also knew that the message is more important than their contentment and their happiness. Paul talks about that. Listen, I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. I've been stoned. I've been hungry. I've had a lot. I've had a little. But God's grace is sufficient. It's all I need. What happened to that? What happened to the grace of God that we could just rely on that and say, this is all I need? I don't care what happens in this earth. All I need is the grace of God. Well, the problem is, is the church has gotten lazy. We don't care about the work of God. We want the work of God to happen here on Sundays between the time of 10 and 11.30. That if God's going to move supernaturally, He has to do it here, and He has to do it from this pulpit. That this is the altar of God, and that if you're not prayed for up here, then no, it probably doesn't work. But yet, during the time of the apostles, there was no church building. There was no place that they went. They met from house to house, a lot of times in hiding. And that when they laid hands on the sick, it was wherever the sick were at. They went around doing the work of the evangelists. I read this last week in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. It said, He himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, some evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ. Why are we tossed to and fro? Because we have no foundation of which our faith is built on. We have beliefs with no conviction. 
We mistake morality for spirituality. If somebody is acting right and being well-behaved, therefore they must be right with God. That's not the case. We don't question ourselves and look in the mirror. Should I be saying those words? Should I get upset about that? Is it okay to curse? Is it okay to tell coarse joking? Or should I allow the words to come out of my mouth to portray the image of Christ? But we're tossed to and fro because we're like, oh, that's just the way I am. I've got a short fuse. I lose my temper. Yeah, well, maybe we should work on that. You see, we have got to quit taking the gospel and trying to fit it in this cute little foldable pouch that we can just hand to somebody. Because the gospel is ugly. It cost Jesus his life, willingly laid it down. It takes people who are the hands and the feet of him to go around and do it. We do a lot of things to stay busy, but we never ask the question, is what we're doing really effective? Are we truly reaching people with the gospel? We wait for the church to step up and do the next event, to do something that we can reach people. What happened to the days where we as the individuals went to people and talked to them and prayed for them? Right now is a great time in this area. Why? We got a lot of people that are hurting right now. I mean, I've spent more time on the phone in the last two weeks than I probably ever have in my life. Just talking to people, praying with people, going and seeing people, just trying to help out. I don't know about you, but I helped fill some sandbags. I helped move people out of their house. I helped just like many of you did the same thing. It was no different. And yeah, I didn't always want to, but it's like, you know what? I can, I can take some time out of my day to go and try to help somebody else. And I'm not doing this to, telling you this to brag, because I know many of you did the exact same thing. I'm telling you this is because we got to get uncomfortable. We're way too comfortable. You see, those five gifts that were given for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, but we're going to wait for those five gifts to step up and do the ministry. You guys do it. Get back to us later. The body of Christ has not come into unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God. We are not perfect beyond measure. We are not fulfilled yet in Christ. And so we need to no longer be children. Have you ever noticed that when it's time to do work around the house, where are the kids? Not stepping up and saying, ooh, can I help with that? You ever walk in to clean the bathroom and you're, you know, your seven-year-old walk in and you're like, Mom, why don't you take a break? I'll, I'll, I'll take it from here. No, what are they doing? Playing video games or hiding? Usually with the husbands. <laughs> no? Okay. <laughs> it's truth right there. Not in my house though, right, Amy? You guys couldn't see that eye roll, but I bet you could feel it. <laughs> Luke chapter 7, verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Remember, John's in jail. He's getting ready to be beheaded. He's starting to question, Okay, are you really the Messiah? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many of the infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. To, to many blind he gave sight. And Jesus answered and said, Go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments. Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, for he is the, who is the least of the kingdom, and God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers 
rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. You see, here it is. They have the opportunity in front of them. John could have baptized him. And that was the first precursor up to the, into the gospel of the kingdom of God. But they refused. They rejected the will of God for themselves. Question, was it the will of God for the Pharisees to be baptized by John and ultimately be born again? Yes, it was. They rejected it. Harder to believe is that the same thing was for the lawyers. Because surely God has no place for them in the kingdom. But apparently he did. You see, they refused just like we do. What happens is we come to God as we are. And we say, Jesus, I need you. It's usually in a time of trial, a time of, of pain, a time of suffering. We're saying, God, I reject this world and I want to follow you. But then we get in here and when that emotion runs off, we begin to level out and say, okay, God, I am yours and I will do with you as I please. I will fit you into my timeline. I will fit you into my world where I see fit. But in a world where there was persecution and people dying for their faith, all they had was Jesus. All they had was that love and that knowledge of knowing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1, because Paul's getting ready, he's going to be executed here soon. He's writing to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready. In season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be a turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Guys, this might as well be written to all of us. You see, we're in a time today where people reject truth. They don't know the truth exists. They completely reject it. According to their desires, they seek out teachers who affirm them the way they are. The only way that will ever change is for truth to be preached. Not just from the pulpits, but from the hearers. See, we can sit here and hear the word all day long. It's the doers that matter. We've got to be ready in season and out. We've, we've got to convince, rebuke, exhort. But the key there is with all long-suffering and teaching. I don't care how long you've been praying for your family and talking to them. Long-suffering and teaching. We wait. We continue. We never stop. As long as there is breath in your lungs, you should be preaching the gospel to everybody that you have the opportunity to. But we don't. And I'll tell you why we don't. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write this. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works and your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not. You have found them liars. You know how they did that? They tested them. They didn't just take in everything. These people were mature. These people knew the truth of the word. You have persevered and have patience, and you have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. 
Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And we just talked about that. You see, they lost their first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Go back to your first works. You see, what happens is that when we recognize that we are sinners and we recognize that we can't save ourselves and we recognize that we need a Savior, man, we humbly bow our hearts before God in tears. I mean, if, if we ripped our clothes and put ashes on our head, we would do that in that moment if that was something that we did because we, we know it. But sometime along the way, we lose heart in that. And we take for granted the work that Jesus did for us and therefore we stop talking about it. We've gotten comfortable. What happened to the power of God? His church got lazy. His church got comfortable. His church would rather play a game and portray themselves as this religious people instead of getting their hands dirty doing the work of the ministry. God gave five gifts to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The problem is, is the saints today want to have air conditioning. They want to sit comfortably. They want to get out by a certain time. They want to make sure the music is the, to their liking. They want to make sure that the paint colors are the right colors. There's a proper feng shui going on in the church. We're all concerned about the modes and the methods. Instead of just doing the work. Because we've lost our first love. We do not love sinners the way Jesus loves sinners. Now, while we were still sinners, he sent his son into the world. He did not wait for them to repent. It is time that the body of Christ step up and be the hands and feet of Jesus to do the work of the evangelist, to preach, convince, rebuke, exhort with all patience, long-suffering, we continue to teach. That we go around when we hear someone is sick and we pray for them. And we give God all the glory for it. You see, we want to see revival. I hear that all the time. We want to see revival. We want to watch God move in this area. He can't move where he's not welcome. And unfortunately, guys, we come near to him with our lips. But our hearts are not his heart. We don't love the lost and the hurting and the dying enough. The sign of when we do is when we begin to get uncomfortable to go and do his work. It's the only way. I say it's time we quit playing games. I say it's time that we start taking this seriously. I say it's time that we begin this week to look in the mirror and say, God, have I been worshiping you with my lips? Have I given you all of my heart? Or am I too caught up in something else? Because the power of God's still moving. And he will move here. I'm telling you what, we get these things right you will see a move of God unlike anything we've experienced before. But we've got to get our hearts right. 